have a Bible uh, or an app on your device, I'd love for you to turn uh, to the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 7 is where we're going to be uh, today. And uh, this weekend, we're starting a four-part series that we have entitled Uncomfortable. And uh, over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about uh, these topics. We're going to talk about uh, next week, the Sanctity of Life, uh, being Sanctity of Life Sunday. Uh, the week after that, we're going to talk about sexual harassment and assault. Uh, and the week after that, we're going to talk about money. Um, and today, we find ourselves talking about race. And it's interesting to me, even the timing of all of this, uh, that even I'm sure most of us, if not all of us in this room, have just been uh, following in different ways the headlines that have been coming out, uh, even over the last few days, um, uh, comments that our president, President Trump, said, or some think he didn't say, and, but there's just been a lot of talk about race and racism, and, and uh, so it's appropriate I think even on this, this Sunday, this weekend, uh, when we remember and think about Martin Luther King Jr. tomorrow, um, it's actually on his birthday, uh, falls, uh, his day falls on his birthday tomorrow, um, that we think about these things. And, and um, you know, this time of year, unlike any others, uh, books that Martin Luther King Jr. has uh, written, uh, sermons that he's preached, speeches that he's given, probably the most well-known is I Have a Dream uh, speech. You maybe have heard excerpts, a quote. You might be posting um, a statement or a quote, uh, an excerpt from a sermon, uh, maybe on social media platform. Um, for me, this weekend, I, I felt prompted to read one of his letters. Um, it's the letter, it's called The Letter from the Birmingham Jail. Um, some of you are familiar with this letter. Um, maybe you've read the whole thing. Maybe you've read parts of it. You've probably heard bits and pieces or read bits, bits and pieces of it at some point. The context of this letter is it was August 1963, and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and many others were in, literally in a jail cell in Birmingham. Uh, they had been imprisoned because of uh, a protest, a nonviolent protest. Uh, they were protesting segregation there in Birmingham. And he wrote a letter. He wrote it longhand. He didn't have a typewriter. He didn't have an uh, email. Um, he wrote it longhand. And when I printed it out, it's five and a half pages. Um, it's a pretty long letter. And he just didn't write it. It wasn't an open letter, but he wrote it specifically to eight white religious leaders in the South. These religious leaders had made a public statement of concern and caution based because of their uh, protests that were taking place there in Birmingham. And Dr. King, there in a jail cell in Birmingham, wrote this letter. I'm not going to read all of it. You can maybe say an amen to that. Um, but what I want to read is just one paragraph that I think for me as a pastor, um, highlights or brings to atten my attention, I hope our attention, the importance of what we're doing today, even specifically addressing this issue. Here's what he said. Again, he's, he's specifically addressing their concerns that they publicly made, the statements they publicly made. Um, and here's what he said. This is one paragraph. He said, I had the strange feeling when I suddenly was catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery several years ago that we would have the support of the white church. I felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be, of some, of our, be some of our strongest allies. Instead, some 
Some few have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the security of their stained glass windows. As a pastor, this letter is incredibly convicting. Written again a number of years ago, back in 1963. But the reality is that the church has been historically silent on the issues of race. They've been historically silent. We haven't talked much about it. And the reasons are varied, and, and, and I think there's, you know, validity some of the reasons. And, but the, the historically speaking, the church has been silent as it relates to this topic. And today, we're going to venture into it. And I know, I'll be honest with you, it is filled with mine, minds everywhere. But we need to venture into it because it's important and it matters. And people's lives are being impacted because of what's taking place in our nation and our world. It was Greg Popovich, it might be a strange transition going from Martin Luther King to Greg Popovich. Uh, Greg Popovich is the coach of the San Antonio Spurs, the NBA team. Uh, back in the fall, he was asked, like many other people were asked, uh, top, uh, about the topic of racism. And here's what Greg Popovich said. He said, unless it's talked about constantly, it's not going to get better. Said Popovich, why do we have to talk about uh, that, talk about race? He asked the question, why do we have to keep talking? Like, that's what some people say. Why do we have to keep talking about it? He says, well, because it's uncomfortable. And there has to be an uncomfortable element in the discourse for anything to change. So friends, as we go through this, there's going to be different points. Maybe you already are uncomfortable, (laughs) even being here. And as we go through, you might, at different points, become a little more uncomfortable. With something, a verse, or a thought, or an idea, or hearing someone's story, it might make you a little more uncomfortable. And, and what I would encourage you to do is pay attention to those. Don't just shrug it off, but to think, why does that make me uncomfortable? What, what is that saying? What, why? What's the why behind that? And I want to let you know, the things we're going to talk about, these are things that I, I am personally trying to move into more and more. I'm not preaching this to you, I'm preaching it to myself. Now, these are things I need to hear, and I want to grow in, uh, learn more about. So I, I move with you as one on the journey together. So I want to anchor this in the Bible. We just don't want to say, well, this is a nice idea. um, But I want us to anchor. There's a lot of different passages of Scripture we can go to. uh, But I want to just anchor it in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 7. Hopefully you have it in front of you. If you don't, the words will be up on the screen. Let me give you a a bit of context because some as we approach Revelation, it's like, oh, I understand it. I I know who wrote it and the context of Revelation. Some of you are like, I've heard a little bit about Revelation and some things that uh, are taking place in there, uh, but I don't really understand it. And so some are maybe brand new to the book of Revelation. So Revelation is written by John, John, one of Jesus' disciples, who is on an island. And it's not a vacation. Um, he's not on a cruise, stopping at different points, getting off, hanging out on the island, getting back on the boat, going on a cruise again. Uh, he's, being, he's been banished. He's, in, he's being punished, exiled, if you will, for preaching and teaching uh, about Jesus, teaching people about uh, who God is, raising up churches. Uh, and the leaders that are above him uh, didn't like what he's doing, so they punished him. They sent the, he's a prisoner, if you will, on the island of Patmos. 
Now, I was thinking about this, just even based on some of the snow days and that very long winter break that just seemed to go on forever, that some parents, I think, would have taken. Can I go to Patmos? Like, I'll go there. Like, it's, it's exciting. I don't care. I'll go. Just put me there, you know? But, but it's not a pleasure cruise. It's not a vacation. It's punishment. And while he's on this island, under this punishment, he has a vision. He has a revelation. He is, things are revealed to John that have never been revealed before. And at the beginning of John, the first few chapters, you have messages that were given directly uh, to seven churches. And then when we get to chapters four and beyond, there's this revelation, there's this picture, there's, he, he's, it's almost like, and even in chapter four, it says there was a door in heaven and he was invited to come in to walk through the door. This is the vision. And it's almost like the curtain is pulled back and John is able to see things that we haven't seen before. God reveals to him, uh, these realities, and he says, write it down. I want, I want this, what you see, to be passed on to fo- those who follow me. And so what we have is some things in chapter 7 that are revealed to John. John chapter 7, verse 9, it says this, After this, I looked... And there before me, so he's literally seeing this in his vision, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they were crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John has, is, 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 as the curtain is pulled back, he sees this multitude that you can't count. Well, there's 5,000 or there's 200 or there's 3,000. He says, it's too numerous to count. We can't even begin to count them. And it's not just people that all look the same, who have the same skin color or, or ethnicity or speak the same language, but it's people from every nation, every tribe, every language, every race is represented in this multitude. There's people that that look like John, and there's people that don't look like John. There's people that speak the same language as John, and there's people that don't speak the same language. There are familiar things and unfamiliar things. What John sees is unity in the midst of great diversity. Unity in the midst of great diversity. What he sees is a family that all looks different speaks different languages, has different skin colors, but is one before the throne, worshiping and exalting, crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We have to pause and ask the question, why? Why does God strategically and intentionally give John this vision? He could have shown him anything. He shows him a lot more in Revelation that we're not going to get to. Um, some of you are like, man, I wish you were going to get to some of that stuff. Um, but, but like, why this? Why this picture of this diverse group of people here surrounding the throne worshiping? There's a lot of reasons. I just want to give you two one, I think it's, uh, uh, it's showing even uh, that God's uh, promises come true. 
When I think of this picture, that this, this image, this vision that John sees around the throne of diversity, of one family, one people, all different, who all look differently, I think I remember, we have to remember what God said to Abraham back in Genesis 13. He said, Abraham, from you, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And what I think we see is that God is faithful to his promises, that what he said all the way back to the beginning will come true. The other reason that I want to just bring to our attention, again, there's many others, but just one other reason I want to bring to our attention is that I believe John is given this vision to then write it down and communicate to the church, the churches that received his letter, and then to us who read it a few thousand years later, several thousand years later, better said, to be inspired to live into that reality today. It's not something we just wait for. Yes, it's ultimate fulfillment will come that day that John saw. But friends, I think what that is saying is don't, you don't have to wait to start to live into that reality, live into it today. Because here's the truth. The church today is to be a preview of what is to come. The church today, what we look like today is to be a preview of what is to come. When you, when, when you go to the movies, um, it seems like they're becoming more and more, but you sit there and before you get to watch the movie you paid for, you have to watch like five, six, seven, it's like 30 minutes, 40 minutes of trailers, previews. And I don't know about you, but what we do is if Lori and I are there, if I'm there with my kids, we're there all together, we'll, we'll watch the preview and it's quickly, we turn to each other and say, we're not going to see that one. Nope, nope, not going to go. Uh, or we watch it and we're like, we are definitely going to go see that one. The preview, the trailer is a taste, if you will. It, it kind of shows you this is what the movie is going to look like. And the idea, friends, today that what we are to live into is we are to live in to this reality that the, that diverse group of different people, no barriers, no one better than another, no more important than another, but oneness, unity in the midst of diversity, one family is what the church is meant to live into today. We are to be a preview of what is to come. Now that's nice to think about. We have to think of the other side of the coin, or the reality is even as Dr. King said, that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours during the week. And there's a variety of reasons why that's true. We don't see it fully yet. We don't see, we get glimpses of it. But there are things that divide us. There are things that keep us apart. There are walls between certain ethnicities and certain races. There are things that we, we don't think, maybe we don't have love for other people, some people of other races or ethnicities or other cultures for a variety of reasons. There's division. There's all these isms that divide us up as a people and even as a church. So the calling for you and I, the invitation for us today is to live more into that reality. So how do we do that? What do we do? There's a few things. There's not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination, but a few thoughts of how we can live more and more into that reality. If we're going to be people that a church, a body of Christ, the, the big church that lives into that, we're going to have to do the hard work of identifying our personal prejudices 
And this is for all of us, whatever race, ethnicity we bring to this room today. When John describes that, there's not a sense of division. There's the sense of unity. There's a sense of oneness. There's, there's this love that just radiates. You get the sense around the throne there. And again, what John is saying is don't wait till heaven or don't wait till this day to love people who are different than you, but love them now. I mean, when we think about all nations and all people groups and all tribes and people that have different color skin than us, the reality, we have to be very honest and humble to say there are some people that are going to be around the throne that maybe right now we don't like. We don't like. We have assumptions about. We think differently of. Supremacy is easy to call out. The spirit of supremacy is easy to call out when people are carrying tiki, tiki torches in Charlottesville. It's easy to call out supremacy, what they're doing. The harder work is to call out feelings of supremacy in here. When I feel better than or more important than them. We all have to do the hard work of identifying, owning, talking about our personal prejudices. A few questions that help us think about this. How did your family talk about blank people? Some of these things, we just, these mindsets, these perspectives, these thoughts, we can't identify, oh, on this day, at this age, I remember my mom or dad or a family member or a friend telling me this about that race or this people group or this ethnicity. Like, I don't have a date, but somehow along the way, because of the environments we were raised in, we just pick up these ideas. And so when we see those people today, these thoughts come to mind. How did your family talk about and you fill in the blank? Who are the people you were taught to fear? Based on the culture, family, the school you went to, your friends? Who are the people you were taught to fear? What assumptions about, again, blank people do you hold? What assumptions do you have? And again, you, you don't know where maybe they came from, but somewhere along, you, you just... When you see that person or that person from that race or ethnicity, you just have these assumptions that just, it's all like almost on repeat. When you see a news story, when you hear a story about someone, again, of a different race or ethnicity, this, you just kind of go, like you don't really question, well, maybe there's more to that than what I'm being told. We have to do the hard work, all of us, whatever race, ethnicity, background, culture we bring to this room today, we have to do the hard work of identifying because when, you, when we see this picture around the throne, there's not this one better than another. There's not walls. There's unity. There's oneness around the throne. There's a personal nature to this, a level to this. That's the first piece of hard work. The second piece of hard work is we have to be people who are committed to the elimination of racial injustices. And for some even here today, when you hear racial injustices, an honest question, and again, it's, it's not from a place of like uh, a mean spirit or ill will. It's an honest question that you might have today is like, is racism really alive today? 
Is it still, like, is really, like, is this really something we have to talk about? That's, that's an honest question that people are asking. You might even have today. You could say the laws have been changed. Slavery is eliminated. All people can vote. We don't see signs today that say whites only or colored only. Schools are desegregated. And, and here's something I've even heard from people, in, we've elected an African-American to the highest office in our country as the president of the United States. Is racism really alive today? Or maybe it's just something in the past. Barna, George Barna, who does a lot of research and statistics uh, on faith, culture, church, the Bible, it's a great resource, barna.org. In May of last year, his research group, George Barna's research group, researched the topic of race and racism, specifically to those who are born again, those who are evangelical Christians. Just ask them a lot of questions about their thoughts about race, racism, uh, white privilege, and all those types of things. And here's what George Barna and his research group discovered. When asked more specifically about racism, that is prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior, evangelicals are almost twice as likely as the general population to agree strongly that racism is mostly a problem of the past. And it's not of the present. It doesn't... It doesn't matter today. It's not active today. We don't see it taking place today. Now, I would agree that there have been incredible changes to our country. But at the very same time, we have to still realize there are injustices, racial injustices that are taking place in our country. And here's something I've even, again, on this journey of uh, learning more and trying to begin to see more and try to understand as much as I can. One thing about racism that I'm learning as I've talked to some people is that, yeah, the laws have changed and th- some things have gotten better. But what racism does is it morphs. It changes. It takes on different forms. It doesn't become as overt as lynchings and marches, but it comes, becomes subvert, it comes under the radar, not as obvious. So here's what I want to do. I want to actually just show us a video clip, and I want to set it up. I want you to hear someone's experience, one's experience, and the person you're going to hear talk, his name is Calvin Brown. Calvin is a pastor that's part of our denomination. He pastors a church in Twinsburg. Him and uh, five other gentlemen, African-American pastors, were part of a panel conversation at our district conference a couple years ago. And they talked very openly and honestly about some of their own experiences as African-American men living in our society. And what I want you to hear, I want you to hear a few things from Calvin. And again, I want to say this. Calvin doesn't speak for all African Americans when he shares what he shares. But what I want you to hear are some of his experiences. And then also listen to him describe how racism takes on different forms. While the laws have changed, the mindsets are still active. So let's watch this clip. Say something. Let's go. I, I do. Well, because I, um, 
I, I was telling my I was telling my mom about this conversation. My mom, she's she's 69. Um, about the conversation we're going to have, and I was reflecting um, on my experiences, like yours, Ron, when when I was a kid. So. Like, we look at these videos of Martin Luther King, what have you, it seems like, it looks like that's so long ago. Like, that's, that's not long ago. So I remember I would go down to Georgia, down near Albany in Dawson, Georgia, where my, where my grandparents had grown up and my great-grandmother was there. And, um, and I remember wanting to go to the swimming pool. And I remember my cousin saying, no, the swimming pool's too far. I said, no, there's a swimming pool right, like we walk right by it to get to the swimming pool. He said, you, you can't go to that swimming pool. Like, what do you mean I can't go to that swimming pool? And they helped me understand, like, because you are black, you cannot go to that swimming pool. This is when I'm a kid. I'm not, I'm not that old. So my mom was reflecting on when she was a child. And, uh, and she would go to the same place, and she said, there was a time when, when the whistle blew, every single Afri- African-American person would be run- If they were out on the streets, they'd be running to get back on their porch. And I, I think my, my wife or my son heard it, and she said, he, they said, um, the kids, and my mom said, the adults. See... Ma'am, I'm telling you, this stuff is so ingrained from the, from the founding of our country. It has been systematically programmed into African Americans that you are, you are less than. And there was a woman on the radio just the other day. She said, during Jim Crow, and see, Jim, listen, Jim Crow is not that old. And the mindset is still alive, and that's what we don't understand, right? She said in Jim Crow, every single jot and tittle of life was segregated so that you could never forget the separation. And whites were infused from a child. They were infused with superiority. And blacks were systematically infused with inferiority, even to the point where you would go into a courtroom, excuse me, blacks and whites could not even put their hands on the same Bible to swear, you know, um, that they're telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. They, it has been so systematically programmed. And to think that that thinking is gone to think that all of a sudden the laws have changed and now we're all, that everything is cool. There are people, and there are people, maybe even some in this room, you're still fighting it because your grandpa sat you on, on his lap and your papa sat you on and just taught you and infused these things. I'm not accusing anybody of it, but listen, this stuff is still alive. You hear of fraternities having Martin Luther King trash parties and stuff. I'm talking about today. These are the same young men and women who are going to be selling products and leading corporations in the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years. You know what I mean? This stuff is still alive and it is systematically programmed, man. It is, it is the zeitgeist. It is the spirit of this age. And let me tell you this. Again, it was weaved into the very fabric of the founding of this country. Thomas Jefferson, who penned the words, all men are created equal, owned almost 200 slaves at the time, and he had to somehow justify it. You know how he justified it? He himself penned the words that I suspect that these Africans 
are inferior in some way, but you know what we need? We need science to perhaps prove it. And science went on with Darwin and others and tried to prove it. The church embraced it. And there are probably some here who graduated from Bible colleges and seminaries who when you went, black folks could not even enter in and study. I'm saying this stuff is not old stuff. This stuff is alive and it perpetuates and it finds itself to manifest in ways that be, they ha- it has to become more subtle because nobody's putting physical chains on us anymore. You, I mean, you, Jim Crow, you're not, you're not going to get away with that. So, they, with, so how do we do it then? How can we do it with our legislation? In Alabama, there's still laws on the books. The same housing laws that were from the 19, early 1900s. See, the stuff is still alive. And I think that's the, as you become aware of that, there is a righteous indignation. Mm-hmm. And you get, and yes, some may cuss and spit and break windows, but it's because there's a rage to say, this is not right. It's not right. Yeah. I don't know if that's the first time you've ever heard um, an African African American man express their experiences and how they view even some of the systems and structures that maybe things we're unaware of because of our own experiences, things we're, we have not experienced. What Calvin said there is, yes, there are no longer chains, physical chains on people. Friends, there are still oppressive systems and structures, injustices that are taking place that might as well be chains. That we have to become more aware of and see and call them for what they are. Jesus came to set the oppressed free. That's what he said when he quoted, when he was in a synagogue in Nazareth. Nazareth was his hometown. It's where he grew up. He went home. And as was the custom, when you went home, if you'd been away for a while, they would ask you, invite you to read the Torah. They would read the scrolls. So he gathers and, oh, Jesus, you've been away for a while. Come on up and read. And the, the, the you know, uh, hero comes home, so to speak. And so they invite him up and he reads. And that day they were reading from, it wasn't just randomly selected, but that day they were reading from the prophet Isaiah. And here's what he said. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. To recover, the re, in recovery of sight for the blind. And release the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When we think of that vision John had of the multitudes, a diverse multitude gathered around the throne, what they're crying out, they're saying salvation belongs to our God and to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And when we hear the word salvation, we, we naturally just think only about uh, salvation as God sending Jesus to get us to be able to be in a relationship with God. And salva- that is salvation. But friends, that's not it. <laughs> Why Jesus came wasn't just to get us to heaven, get us into a relationship with God. It was, but at the same time, what he quotes here in Isaiah is saying, I've come to set the oppressed free. And it's more than just sinful oppression. 
but it's the injustices that still to this day are oppressing people. And sometimes if it doesn't impact us, we don't think about it. We don't care about it. It doesn't matter. I'm okay. I'm living a good life. I get what I need. But friends, and it shouldn't matter who they are, even if they're followers of Jesus or not. But let's just even say if they're followers of Jesus and they're living under these oppressive structures and systems because of who they are and the color of their skin, shouldn't that bother us and grieve us and be willing to speak out and up about them and address them as God would give us opportunities? We have to be willing to seek the elimination of racial injustices. We have to, as we think about this topic today, I hope you've kind of sensed kind of two levels. There's a personal level that we have to deal with, look at in here. We have to think about these things. We all have them. I have them. We have to think about these things. And then there's a systemic, there's structures, there's institutions, there's just ways of life that we could be very naive about. And they're oppressing people. Jim Wallace in his book, America's Original Sin, said this, racism is sustained both by personal attitudes and structural forces. Racism can neither, can either, or can therefore be brutally overt or invisibly institutional or both. It's not one or the other. It's both and. And as we think about this, we have to move into it. Now, as we think about this, I mean, this is a heavy, heavy subject. And we are just, I mean, I don't even think we're scratching the surface as it relates to this topic and the depth of it and the complexity of it and all that. So, so you, might, you might be like here today, like, this is so discouraging. Like, this is just heavy, heavy stuff. And I want to let you know, like, I, I don't preach this. I don't think about this. I, like, I actually find hope because of John, John's revelation in the book of, John's, what he sees in the book of Revelation, what he writes about. Because friends, right now, things aren't good on many levels. Like what we're seeing in politics and in some cities scattered across our nation, like it's just scratching the surface. It's a microcosm of a greater issue. So things aren't good. But I'm thankful that John presents this picture, he is given this picture, this revelation of a greater reality. That's what it's moving towards. And right now, it's not, it might not be good, but friends, we know there's one who reigns, and he, that's where it's going. And I'm thankful for that. I'm filled with hope because of that today. But how does God answer that prayer? What is, how is God going to you know, move it in that direction? You and I. When we pray, God, do that more and more, you and I are the answers to that prayer. It's not like, some, well, that's someone else's job, that's someone else's responsibility. It's for all of us to be people who move into this, lean into this, think about this, be convicted in different ways by it, like move into this uncomfortable subject because it matters to the very heart of God. So, so what do we do from here? I just want to give us three quick thoughts about what do we do from here, and then I want to lead us in a prayer together. What do we do from here? I want to encourage us to learn. I would encourage us to learn to read books that are outside of our experience. 
Watch movies, documentaries that are different than what you've experienced growing up. Who you, your ethnicity, your race. Watch, learn. As you read through the Bible, read, think about this grid of all people, all nations, all tribes, all languages. From the very beginning to the end, God's been concerned and, and pursuing all people to reconcile them under one family. Think about these things. Learn. Have a spirit of humility that says, I, I, I need to learn. I want to learn more about this. For those of us who are white, I want to say this. This is something I've just realized even over these last couple of years, the important part of learning for us specifically who are white. We have to learn more and more about what it means to be white. Our identity, our culture. You've maybe heard in this whole conversation in different articles or books you've read about the idea of white privilege. And there was a time just a few years ago that when I heard that phrase, I was like, wait a minute, I, I mean, I've worked pretty hard for what I have. Just, I've been given things. Like, I don't, I don't get this. And I just kind of pushed back. And honestly, I was pretty defensive. I'll just be very honest with you. But with the help of some friends who are different than me, I've begun to see more and more what it means, what white privilege means and how it impacts how I view race and racism and my life and my response and what takes place in our world and our nation and laws and systematic racism. It, my, my lens impacts how I see things. So we have to lean into this, learn more about this. One has called it unearned privilege. It's the advantages given to me that I didn't deserve, but I just am given because of who I am. I'm seeing more and more that we're not getting an equal start at the, finish, at the starting line of race. Some have described it this way. It's benefiting from white privilege means you can walk on the earth unaware of your color. You don't think every day about being white because you don't have to. But there are people of other races that every single day they have to think of their race and they do. That's reality. White privilege means never having to worry about your hair, skin color, or cultural accessories as a reason you didn't get a job. White privilege means you'll never have to be told to get over slavery. We have to lean into these things. We have to learn. We have to have a humble attitude. Not just learn, but listen. We have to listen to those who are willing to share their stories with us. And I want to highlight that, the willing to share. I, want, I don't want you to go to work tomorrow, this coworker that you've never talked to about race or racism and say, listen, at church yesterday, the pastor preached a message on racism. Tell me everything I need to know about systematic racism. Don't do that. Please don't do that. But friends, some of you have coworkers and neighbors and family members that are gracious enough, willing enough, to share with you their stories, their experiences. And listen to them and believe them. Don't push back. Don't say, well, what about, what about this? What about that? What, did you think about this? They could have done this. Just listen and try 
with God's help, to put yourself in that as a parent, as, a, as an adult, as a mom, or as a dad. Sit in their, put on their shoes, so to speak. Think about what would that be like. Listen. And then lastly, lament. These realities should grieve us as we see things on the news, as we hear stories. There should be a, a, a grief, a lament, a this is not right. A lament, the idea of grieving is a biblical response. A third of the Psalms a laments. We have a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. We have Nehemiah who before he did all the work, he grieved and he mourned. Instead of offering simple solutions to complex problems, would we grieve and lament and feel sorrow for what's taking place? Just a few statistics that should grieve us. More than 70% of black children are born outside of marriage. For a young black man, ages 15 to 24, almost 50% of all deaths are due to homicide. 15 to 24, almost 50% of all deaths are homicide compared to just 8% of young white men of the same age group who die also, who die because of homicide. 8% to 50%. And African Americans make up 40% of the incarcerated population despite only making up 13% of the population. Now we can think about those things and say, well, make better choices, don't break the law. And again, those are simple solutions to very complex problems. And again, I just want to say too, it's not just a black and white issue either. I'm just highlighting some stats about that. But it's not just a black and white issue. But friends, these statistics, there's reasons, there's underlying reasons that haven't just been taking place in these last 10 years, but 200 plus years have gotten us to where we are today. And I want to say there's maybe a bigger things going on that would cause even some of these to happen. There's a very personal reason why this is a topic, something I want us to move into, I want to move into personally. When Calvin was sharing his story in that video, he talked about going to a swimming pool. Yesterday afternoon, Lori and I had been watching uh, our two nephews and their sister uh, while their older brother had surgery last week. And uh, my two nephews are six years old. They've, uh, they were adopted by my brother and sister-in-law uh, from West Africa. And yesterday, we took those two little boys and our kids, our family, to the Strongsville Rec Center. And as I was listening to Calvin's story, there was a time where he couldn't go to a pool. I'm thankful today that laws have changed, some things have changed, and that I could take my two nephews into that pool without people questioning or wondering or saying, sorry, they can't come here. So I'm thankful for what's taken place. But at the same time, I realize the systems and the structures and the environments, the society that those boys are growing up in. And there's going to be people, I'm not saying I'm not, calling anyone out, but the reality is there's going to be people a few years from now who consider them a threat. That's the reality. And I grieve for that. And I long for these boys to be free 
to be free from any oppressive injustice that they might experience. Not just them, but many others. So it's a very personal issue for me. And I hope for all of us, because it matters to God. So I want to lead us in a prayer. So I'm going to invite our worship team, and you've been very kind to listen um, for a long time this morning. I want to invite you to stand. I want to lead us in this prayer, this congregational prayer. It's simply a, I'll read something and then encourage you, if you feel led, to respond and read the the prayer underneath. It's just a prayer acknowledging these things, asking God for his help to live differently. So again, I'll read the first part and just ask you, invite you to read the second part. Gracious God, we thank you for making one human family of all the peoples of the earth, for creating all the wonderful diversity of cultures. From the bondage of racism that denies the humanity of every human being and the prejudices within us that deny the dignity of those who are oppressed, Lord, set us free. From racism that blinds the oppressor to the destruction caused by the spirit and practice of racial injustices, Christ, set us free. From racism that will not recognize the work of your spirit in other cultures, Lord, set us free. Forgive those of us who have been silent and apathetic in the face of racial intolerance and bigotry, both overt and subtle, public and private. Break down the walls that separate us. Empower us to speak boldly for justice and truth and help us to deal with one another without hatred or bitterness, working together with mutual forbearance and respect.